Welcome to episode 9 of the On The Way podcast, a podcast dedicated to a non-dualistic, compassionate understanding of the Christian faith. My name is Dom Fay, and I am joined, as always, by the very Reverend Dr. Peter Cat. Hello, Peter. Good day, Dom. Nice to be with you. And uh, this is the first time for the podcast we've gone off-site. Off-site. Here we are. <laughs> we've gone on an in excursion. Paddington, yes. To Paddington, uh, to be joined by... Uh, one of the leading Girardian uh, scholars in the world, theologian and priest James Allison joins us. Thank you so much for your time, James. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much for coming all the way to Paddington. Yeah. <laughs> a, a leisurely 15-minute <laughs> yeah, drive. Right. Yes. I think Peter was quite scared of my driving on the way. Oh, I trusted you and I said the rosary as we came around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, James, you are obviously uh, going around Australia on a bit of a speaking tour. What's what's the trip look like? Where, where have you been? Where are you going? I've... Um, I started in Sydney, I've been in Canberra, I'm here now in Brisbane, um, later Adelaide, Melbourne, and then back to Sydney. You're great. So it's, uh, as it were, it's the inner loop rather than the <laughs> outer loop. <laughs> um, well, we, we want to talk, obviously, throughout this podcast about mimetic theory, um, about scapegoating and the theology of the cross. Um, Peter did mention on the, the car ride here, James, that it was your... Uh, your work that actually made sense of the cross for him for the first time, and I'm sure for many others as well. So we certainly want to touch on that. I just thought to start, though, um, you are an advocate for, uh, I guess, a radical inclusion of LGBT people within the church. Um, you are a gay person yourself as well. And you've come to Australia, uh, as we've had over the past few months, quite a, a vicious debate surrounding uh, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, the postal vote. I just want to know, what do you make of all of this as, as, a, as a, I guess, a tourist, as someone dropping by, <laughs> having a look at it? What do you make of the climate at the moment? Well, first I want to say that um, my tour, my trip was prepared long before um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, the glorious decision to reach for that greatest of all democratic tools, the postal survey, <laughs> <laughs> was, uh, was, uh, was finally... Um, landed upon by your government. Um, well, frankly, you know, it's baffling and bizarre, but then uh, as a Briton, I've lost my right to even query the weirdness of others given the national suicide attempt of my country <laughs> through Brexit. So uh, <laughs> uh, it seems to me that if, you know, if the choice is Trump, Brexit and a postal survey, uh, I'll stick with the postal survey. <laughs> it, it does seem that a lot of other Western countries obviously have moved on this some time ago, um, decades ago in the case of places like Canada. Um, or Spain, where I live. Exactly. Do you, do you find it um, perplexing that it's still something being dealt with in a country like Australia, or, or do you think that's just how things go? Yeah, I think that as uh, you know, most of the rest of the Anglosphere wonders why Australia, which we know through Australians we know whether we've been here or not, to be kind of up there with the rest of us, what's going on. Um, and it clearly is uh, a weird a weird function of coalition politics that often it happens in whatever country. Uh, a government with a small minority is, um, uh, as it were, how do you say, hijacked by a very small group of people who then exercise a, a outsized role in certain matters. We in the Britain in Britain at the moment, the DUP is what's keeping the Tories in power. That's the Democratic Unionists from Northern Ireland, um, and this this was Mr. Paisley's party. Um, so it's it's not dissimilar. Um, uh, if if uh, Fred Niles were to hold the the majority of 
uh, were to hold the swing vote in Parliament. It would be a, something similar. So, yeah, so there is a certain weirdness about the fact um, that it's had to come to, to this as a way of dealing with it. Um, that, I mean, dear Lord, if, if Angela Merkel had the, the good sense to realise that she wanted the issue out of the way before the election, step aside, uh, have, a, um, have a free vote, in which she was then perfectly happy to vote against if she wanted to, but then get the thing out of the way. <laughs> You'd have thought that it's in enough people's interests to do something like that at this stage. What, what, I, what I found sad, of course, wasn't so much the fact of the happening, but the perception that uh, there was immediately an attempt to recycle some of the worst um, of the kind of North American argument, uh, you know, as they having lost... <laughs> Um, in their own continent, they are determined to see if they can uh, spread the rot in other places. So immediately you've got uh, this victimary thing about freedom of conscience, uh, freedom of religion, and start of things like that. Um, as though, in fact, in any of the countries in which uh, same-sex marriage has become law, it has produced any real difference in any of these matters at mm. all. Leave aside the United States where everyone will all argue about everything forever indefinitely because it's such a legalistic uh, culture. I mean, I live in Spain. Spain has had equal marriage since 2005. I mean, really, it's like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the sky doesn't fall. A whole lot of things don't happen. Are people marrying dogs yet in Spain? Has that um, happened? I'm very fond of yeah. mine. I'm very fond of mine, but uh, <laughs> um, I don't think he's the marrying type. <laughs> well, one, one of our politicians suggested that people would want to marry the Harbour Bridge. Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, I haven't it's seen that sign well, either. No bridge marrying happening in Spain. A Mexican, a Mexican cardinal suggested that we would want to marry cockroaches. Oh. <laughs> um, so. That's presumably very long-term marriages, since as I understand it, they're the ones that are going to survive the Holocaust. Oh, they're going to. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it is. Um, it does play. Obviously, by the time this podcast is released, we'll probably have a, a verdict on the postal vote. Um, but it does play in a lot of the areas of uh, scapegoating of of the role of the victim um, that we will touch on throughout this podcast, and and largely this is informed by the work of Rene Girard, who. Um, I have found surprisingly few people even know, uh, in my circles at least. So I might actually start with you, Peter. Can you give us a bit of a background on, on René Girard? Who are we talking about when we talk about the person who, who has uh, come up with these theories? Uh, René Girard uh, died a couple of years ago. He was a um, French Catholic sociologist, um, studied, studied cultures and founding stories of cultures, and found in many cultures there was a story at the foundational level of that civilization that um, relied on a murder of one person being killed by another and that community arose out of out of the murder and that led him to eventually have a look at the christian story and the christ event and to if you like reinterpret it uh, for us in a way certainly for me it was a, a refreshing uh, revelation to discover a girardian way of looking at the cross which i discovered through uh, james's book the raising of abel um, and of course, the Cain and Abel story is the is the founding murder story in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm. That uh, 
when um, Cain murders Abel, we have the beginning of civilization. So, James, this uh, this idea of a founding murder. What 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 is the reason for this? What is the use of this in the forming of myths? I guess the forming of civilizations. Well, before before um, before we get to myths, let's think of it as a mechanism. Um, if you get a lot of people together, and they're all imitating each other, um, very quickly they can become rivalistic. <laughs> as to say, what. I mean, Imitating people in order to achieve better things can be a good thing, but uh, any group of humans who are imitating each other, and all humans are great imitators, <laughs> um, eventually, over the flip of a dime, over the smallest thing, rivalry starts to break out. And of course, once rivalry starts to break out, we're also very good at imitating each other in our conflicts. Mm. So you run the risk of an all-against-all. And amazingly, if you look at against all-against-alls, if you look at highly contagious mob situations. Uh, one of the things that tends to happen, not always, groups can destroy themselves, uh, but one of the things that tends to happen is that the group will somehow, more or less suddenly, uh, fixate on someone or some small group uh, and create their unanimity around its expulsion. Mm. In other words, it's in the act of coming together against one that the all against all becomes an all against one. And the thing about an all against one is that it means that peace is restored again. Everyone is united again temporarily. One is dead or <laughs> cast out. But there's unity suddenly. And because there's unity, people think, oh, well, we must have got it right. <laughs> it must actually have been that one yeah. who was causing the trouble and who now, having been kicked out, has given us peace. So that one becomes rather sacred, mm. both dangerous and holy at the same time. So that's the basis of, uh, of this notion. It's the notion of the what's what people now call the scapegoat mechanism. Mm. Just, this is a mechanism. This is something which just happens. Well, perhaps we should uh, dial it back a bit from the scapegoat mechanism to, I guess, the core of, of Gerard's work, which was mimetic desire, mimetic yep. theory, um, which obviously you are, uh, that's one of your key talking points, James. Can you just give us a background to mimetic theory? What is mimetic theory? Yeah, mimetic theory is, it's, it's a very, very simple idea with very big consequences, but it's, it's a, uh, Stated very simply, it is we humans desire according to the desire of another. Mm. So rather than me having a self, which is a kind of a blob somewhere in the pit of my stomach, out of which emerge arrows of desire, which latch on to this or that car or house or holiday or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it might be. In fact, it is through the eyes of a model that I learn to find this car, that house, this boyfriend, that girlfriend, attractive, desirable, and so on. In other words, we learn to desire not linearly, but triangularly. It's from the eyes of what a model designates that we start to see the worth of something. So you're saying in a vacuum, I would not want the new iPhone 10. In a vacuum, you would not know. You know, you wouldn't want the you know, iPhone 10. Mm. And um, 
the manufacturers of the iPhone 10 or indeed Adidas sneakers or whatever it is know this perfectly well. Um, so their marketing people are very, very good at making their product desirable. So you get what is literally called, and they refer to it as such, viral marketing, in which, for instance, uh, uh, Adidas or Nike or whoever will go to certain high schools, observe or have their scouts observe who are the cool kids, the ones who the others are imitating, and then give them free a pair of, you know, $300, um, uh, that's US dollar, so a good deal more <laughs> Australian dollar, um, brand new sneakers. Mm. And uh, they know that within a week they'll have sold 300 or 400 more because if those have them, everybody must have them. They become the the thing without which you are not a real person. <laughs> So how deeply systemic is that? Is that every desire we have is mimetic, would you say? Yeah, we're the, we are the creatures who no longer have access to pure instinct. <laughs> every dimension, even of our instinct, is already received through the other that brings us into being. You know, We no longer have instinctual sex, instinctual eating, instinctual sleeping, uh, instinctual drinking, our capacity to receive and manage our instincts is already something which we receive and learn through others, let alone such obviously human things as language, which is a certain a certain mixture of gesture and sound and repetition over time, which enables us to uh, produce the sounds that eventually become a narrative and so on, uh, enabling us to be uh, to be humans. So yes. And this is quite unflattering from the point of view of people who say, yeah, 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 I can go with all that. But really at the bottom, somewhere, somewhere at the bottom, there must be a real, real little imperial me trying to get out. Um, I say, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, all a construction? Actually, well, it's, it's all construction. But that makes it sound as though it's, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, it's all a body. What we are, what is unique in the case of each one of us is this body which was born at this time in this place to this mother under these particular circumstances that is unique and unrepeatable hmm. the pattern of desire which brings that body into being as a project such that over time it becomes a viable self who is able to negotiate the we that has preformed it that that person is real enough. That's a real person. But it's a real person who is a project over time of the negotiation of this body. So I think that's quite an important. That's, that's really quite old-fashioned thinking. I mean, it's, it sounds new, but amazingly, it's, uh, it's closer to Aristotle than back to the old, uh, the, the, well, what we think of, of as modern, which is basically goes to the 17th century and a very strong split between mind and the body. Um, it's important, I must just say, it's an important mechanism because it's actually how we get socialised. So the, the whole desire and uh, being modelled to is, is the thing that also makes us human. So it's just that it also leads to conflict. So there's, there's this socialising aspect of it that means that we know how to relate to each other and how to negotiate because we've learnt stuff by modeling and you see it happening as kids grow up and and kids from the earliest of ages show the mimetic desire thing going at 100 miles an hour 
um, it, it's actually what socializes us and makes us communal animals. Mm. We've just now got it. We just end up with a tension between wanting to be in community, but at the same time uh, wanting to compete with each other. And so you get those two mechanisms in tension. So James, this, I guess, concept of, of mimetic desire, that your desire is imitating another's desire. Have these studies, has this made you question every desire you have? Gosh, I wish I was as, um, what's the word, as thinking and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, I'm no doubt it should get me to question more of them. But no, actually, it's what it's taught me is to relax into not minding the fact that I'm not original. I don't have to define myself over against everybody or uh, grasp at being by... Um, you know, what uh, necessarily having whatever the latest eye gadget is, though I do in fact have a very, um, <laughs> I'm emetic I'm enough to have a, a very good iPhone 6. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that one of the, the things is learning how to relax about being much less of a protagonist and much more of a <laughs> symptom. Right, And actually, that's the beginning of freedom. Because when you're constantly thinking of yourself as a protagonist, in fact, what you're doing is being reactive. Uh, and while thinking you're free, you're in fact depending much more on the person you're <laughs> defining yourself over against. Now, I'm not like that person. I'm original. Mm. Um, everyone else can see that you're, the more you fight with them, the more like them you become. <laughs> so one of the ways, one of the ways of... Uh, you know, it's not minding losing. One of the ways of becoming free is not minding losing. Yes, and like like all of us, I have to be careful uh, of my desires when, you know, passions are produced in me uh, of anger, resentment, hatred, uh, which it's easy to cherish. And that makes them very dangerous to other people and to me. Uh, whereas if I learn to say, oh, I see that I'm, um, <laughs> silly me, there I go again. And you say something like that to yourself, and then it, 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 you don't take yourself so seriously. And that's half the <laughs> that's half the, that's half the the, the beginning mm. of freedom is being mm. able to giggle at yourself. I think so. So it's almost it's almost observing the mimetic desire, I guess, system um, without necessarily labeling it as bad, without labeling it as broken, without necessarily saying, I need to get out of that, and, and just having a bit of a chuckle about the fact that yeah. maybe I bought this iPhone ten because uh, I saw other people wanting it. Oh, yes, yes, uh, yeah. Yes, uh, uh, detecting instantly when my clothing style is uh, entirely because of Kim Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so you're saying yeah. it's not a problem, it no. just is. It just is. That's the whole point of mimetic desire is not this is something evil to be um, watched again. It can turn rivalistic very quickly. Mm. So that's that's the thing to watch out for. Right. Okay. And I guess this is the next step of mimetic desire is if, you know, Peter and I, if Peter desires something and as a result I desire it because I see Peter's desire for it, then there is a rivalry over who gets it. And I suppose is this where mimetic desire turns into, into conflict? Yep. Um, particularly it turns into conflict if you and Peter are at the same level. 
Right. If there is some sort of hierarchy, some sort of distance between you, then actually you can probably desire the same thing as he fairly peaceably. But it's as he gets closer and closer to you, as you get better and better at imitating him, and of course this is what uh, we have in the in the modern world with ever fewer hierarchies and people who are ever closer to being at the same you know level as each other without the kinds of distinctions uh, that acted as buffers, mm. uh, not very successful buffers, but buffers of some sort. Uh, we're all, if you like, on the same plane, so we're all potential rivals to each other. Uh, and that makes it more complicated, which means that resentment uh, at not getting things can grow much more exponentially because we're all supposed to be equal. Um, so yes, if you like, you start not only entering into conflict with other people, but entering into conflict with yourself <laughs> because you're interiorizing the other, uh, the other person. So these are just some of the complexities of being uh, uh, of being alive now when a mechanism, if you like, where there was a greater distance between people, we're now all very, very, very much the same, you know. You're saying that the, the peasant maybe didn't desire what the king had because they thought it entirely unrealistic to desire that? Or? Oh, no, the, pe- the peasant might have desired what the, what the king had, but was very unlikely to enter into rivalry physically with right. the king. Okay. Um, a child may well desire what the parent desires, mm. but is very unlikely to enter into rivalry with the parent to get it. Right. Uh, the greater the distance, and especially phys- you know, physical things, there is an element of realism in that. Um, you can imitate someone comparatively well if there's very little risk of you ever bumping into them uh, and actually becoming uh, a rival of them. I mean, I can imitate Sherlock Holmes and become the best detective in uh, uh, in Paddington. Um, but if I were to ever bump into the real Sherlock Holmes, there might be a problem. Luckily, there isn't a real Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> so, so the, the I but, guess, but but. Uh, down at the local cop shop, um, you can imagine that maybe someone is wanting to be as good as their super and run the risk of, in fact, their super uh, starting to get nervous about how good they're getting. <laughs> mm. Do you see the, the thing? Because the super is really there. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter when the guy was a young constable, but now he's rising in the ranks. And you see how the, the what were friendships of admiration can very suddenly turn into matters of of rivalry and and bitterness and paranoia almost even so so is there is there a sense then of like um whether it's a desire for more money for you know more i guess ego field things whether it's more notoriety more uh respect these sort of of desires which are inherently mimetic are what i guess would would you say they the the core thing that leads us to violence as, as humans? Is that the core underlying thing of most violence? Rivalry. Yeah. Rivalry of one sort or another. Um, yeah, I think that riv- rivalry is what, uh, is what, is what leads, us, uh, leads us to violence. And often we find ourselves in it without really understanding why we're in it. Mm. The, the, the pretexts arrive after the fact rather than, um, rather than the other way around. So it's so instinctual that we just end up in it? No. No, I think that instinctually that that's a it's a mistake. No, it's just okay. just the fact that we are uh, rivalistic, and so we find ourselves drawn into what other people are doing, 
right. and before we notice it, we're all being run by a pattern of desire from which there seems to be no way of, of getting out, uh, which is how you know people suddenly find that what seemed impossible three months ago now seems inevitable. And we look back and think, how can we not have seen that we were just about to have a nuclear war or whatever it mm. is? Uh, but, you know, uh, that that's the kind of thing that uh, that happens. We are we're always on the inside of this. One of the things which we can't do is be cool and stand outside and say, "I, who am not run by mimetic desire, can look down upon you, mad horde of mimetic ants running around after each other, and see quite clearly what's going on." I'm not. In you know liable, I'm immune to your contagion. No, none of us is immune. That's the whole. <laughs> that's the whole point, which means that none of us are outsiders right. to what's going on. Which means that it's actually genuinely difficult. Uh, this kind of thing, the working of hermetic desire, is much much easier to see in other people than in oneself. We are we are blind to our own scapegoating, and very very uh, savvy about other people's scapegoating. <laughs> Well, I think there's, um, as a history student at high school, I remember history was always taught with an undertone of how could they have made these mistakes, almost of um, sneering at, at people for, I can't believe they ended up in a situation where they had world wars, while being totally oblivious to perhaps the divisions, the, the rivalries that we have under as an undercurrent of our life today. Yep. Um, that are leading maybe to a similar, a similar destination. Yep. It does kind of seem like a loop. Um, Peter, do, do you find that when you look at, at society, do you feel like we're, we're caught in these, I guess, these never-ending loops? Repeating it, it, is a, it is a loop and, um, and we're very good at um, hindsight. So uh, a few years ago we had the 20th anniversary of the, of the, uh, the massacres in Rwanda and um, asked that question, how could that have happened? And Yet in you know we're in the midst of a genocidal sort of outbreak at the moment with the Rohingyas and the Myanmar authorities, and we're sort of standing around watching it happen or denying that it's happened, um, not intervening because it does sort of repeat itself and you know, the mimetic contagion sort of takes over and takes over in here we are in Australia having a repeat of the debate about same-sex marriage that has been played out in many other places as if this is unique. Mm. The same arguments, as James said, the same arguments are being floated as if they're unique and we're all taking it all very seriously and we're deeply embedded in it as if these arguments somehow are real and matter and we're just going through exactly the same process and we're competing with each other and... Um, you know, one, there was a call for the debate to be respectable and because it's not respectable, both sides are tending to descend into lowest common denominator behaviour um, while blaming the other for being out of order. And we just repeat. It's like, you know, we're, we're pretending that this, ha this, this scenario hasn't been played out anywhere else. It's... Um, it's bizarre, really, and yet we're all in the middle of it. You know, I'm, I'm a participant, as James says. I'm not immune from from feeling um, enraged and embittered and sad and gutted and all of those things. So is it possible 
to learn from history or or are we doomed to only ever continue repeating the same cycles that are seem to be at the core of how humans coexist yeah i think we can we can learn and we learn um when we are able to recognize the innocence of our victims and that's the worthwhileness of monuments uh Monuments, typically our monuments are to our successful victors. But the better monuments are to those who we were complicit in killing or getting rid of. So a rather striking, strikingly sober Holocaust monument in, uh, in Berlin, for example. Um, that kind of thing, as I understand as well, now they're in the United States. Some of the states were taking down their Confederate generals, who were, of course, um, uh, criminal secessionists <laughs> and defenders of uh, uh, of slavery, and are putting in their stead um, some models of slave activists. Um, who, of course, were all executed in the years leading up to the Civil War, but who at the time would have been considered terrorists, mm. the equivalent of terrorists, uh, and and rebels. Uh, so uh, the difficulty is allowing elements of self-criticism to puncture our self-flattering stories. But when oh. we do that, then we do learn. So when we, when we, we see the innocence of the victim... When we see, I guess, our complicitness or our complicit nature in, in killing innocent victims. Or driving them out. Yeah. Or driving them out. Then maybe we can catch ourselves and say, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't have it figured out. And perhaps I'm not that great. Uh, yeah, but also we can say, oh, uh, uh, I see we're going down that road again. Yeah, right. So um, catch ourselves. Catch ourselves. Yeah. But that's that's very difficult. And, uh, you know, um, we're... We're not good at uh, we're not good at doing it, and um, what we call the whistleblower position is always a minority one. Um, nevertheless, there have been remarkable uh, attempts to try and do things like have truth and reconciliation commissions, um, actually to try and get it established as as a matter of fact what really happened, so that there is some sense that the victims' voices are heard mm. so that they too have a voice, the voice that was denied them in the future of how things are going to be uh, done. That's a very delicate process and there are, in any culture that starts a, a truth and reconciliation process, there is a very great deal of <laughs> uh, pushback from mm. those who appreciate that it is going to disrupt their story very, very seriously. Could it ever be, could it ever become the majority position, a position of, I guess, uh, introspection of awareness of, of moving, or I guess standing in observation of these desires and, and being aware of them to not go down the same path? Or will it always be the work of the minority, the work of the few? Well, yeah, I don't think it's ever stable. Um, as, we're seeing in, as we're seeing in Germany now, you've now got, for the first time since 1945, a... Uh, uh, a, a strong right-wing uh, party in Parliament, and Germany has been after you know the first the first 
15 years or so of struggling with itself over the legacy of, of, of Nazism, they went very seriously into learning what had gone wrong, why, and doing their very, very best to make sure that this didn't happen again. Um, so there's a really very admirable culture created there over a period of time. Now, uh, that's in some sort of jeopardy because Germany is not immune to the same forces that are trying to rile us all up into being against each other, which it seems with the help of Mr. Putin and his... Uh, uh, and his bots, um, who seem to be absolutely brilliant at creating divisive, divisive messaging, uh, because if you like, hate has the best tunes. Mm. If you want to give people cheap identity, give them identity over against someone. It will set up the passions. It feels much sexier for a bit, but you know, a bit like junk food. Uh, it tastes great, but then after a bit, it doesn't really nourish. Um, so junk meaning is a very dangerous thing and that's what we're seeing at the moment um one of the one of the signs of hope i think is uh the people who read um paul paul with a girardian lens on and um point to the way in which paul invites us to imitate christ that um that basically the invitation is to accept that we are mimetic that we need something to model ourselves on and so to accept that that's who we are, rather than say oh, I can get out of I can get out of the mimetic bind. I can, as James says, sit above the mimetic pool and think that I'm different or better. But to accept that we are mimetic, and then to um, be selective about where we get our modelling from. And so, you know, in Philippians, Paul talks about um, imitate me, just as I imitate Christ, and mm. then then paints the picture of, well, this is, this is Christ. Christ took, was in the form of God, um, but didn't cling to it. You know, didn't. And so, so choose your model. You are mimetic, except get, get with the program. You are mimetic, that's, how the way, that's, the, that's what it is to be human. But choose your model. Choose a different model. Choose a model that wasn't striving and and sort of to use the use the whole mimetic program almost like using it against itself so that we actually live a different style of life imitating something else paradox almost well it's quite paradoxical yes yeah, yeah I, I hope it's i prefer the term ironic rather than paradoxical <laughs> because paradoxical makes it sound as though there are two equal things that don't quite but actually it this is this is about this is about having our identity given to us by our learning a disposition dispossession mm. uh, of all previous identities, right? And that does mean uh, it is a certain form of imitation. It's a certain form of imitation into loss because you know you are going to be given your being, whereas. Our normal form of imitation is a grasping at being because we don't know who we are and we're desperate to be someone. Um, so the imitation as of Christ is a learning over time uh, of dispossession, of emptying, emptying oneself out in that traditional language, but not 
out of any kind of negativity, but because that's the way I'm going to receive who I really am. Mm. In other words, it's a it's a different route to the reception of being through the eye of another. In this case, the other is the person who we call God the Father. It's only uh, thus that the son or daughter is born in the dispossession of the old Adam, little by little. I do want to get into quite shortly how the Jesus on the cross story provides us with another model. Um, but but just touching on, I guess, the way mimetic theory develops. So we mentioned desire is uh, mimetic. You imitate the desires of others. That leads to rivalries. And how does that then lead, the rivalries that, are, that come from mimetic desire, how does that lead towards the scapegoating solution? What's the, I guess, the, the process of that, how that occurs? Well, uh, as I... As I suggested, very, very mimetic, hyper-mimetic apes, which is what we really are mm. um, and what we certainly were on the process to us becoming who we are, um, reached a stage where our imitative capacity um, and therefore our potential for rivalry overrode the instinctual breaks and the dominance mechanisms like alpha males um, which we can see still alive in uh, other ape groups. And therefore, we became incredibly dangerous to each other because if you are a group of hyper-imitative creatures with no external break on your rivalry, then either you're going to wipe each other out or you may have the good fortune to stumble into the mechanism of the all-against-one. And if you have the good fortune to stumble against the all against one, you will actually find yourself saved. Not in the Christian religious sense, but saved from your own violence. You will have, in fact, violently protected yourself against your own violence. (laughs) And that's the beginning of human culture. Uh, the, The violent protection of ourselves, the violent containment of violence. And you did mention that the scapegoating mechanism briefly works. It does. Each time. The trouble is uh, that it only works so long as you don't know you're doing it. Mm. You're right. Mm. The moment you begin to suspect that the one over against whom you are ganging is in fact either arbitrarily chosen or simply innocent, then you cease to be able to create the unity. If no one really believes that such and such a person is responsible for all their ills, then they're not going to join together very convincingly to lynch mm. them. It's only when everyone is really convinced that it was that bastard. Or that witch. Or, or that witch. Or, or, that witch, or, or, or those or foreigners. Jew, or, or, that, the, yes, yeah. or those immigrants. Or whatever. Or the gypsies. Yeah. 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 Mm. So um, the mechanism works for as long as the lie lasts. The problem, if you like, uh, and this is the problem which which Jihad brings out, the third dimension of his thought, uh, the problem with that has been the eruption through the Hebrew scriptures and then into Christianity of the uh, culturally completely counterintuitive perception of the innocence of the victim. So tales in which the group is discovered to have been wrong (laughs) Mm. tales in which the mythical accusations of incest and parricide are undone. The famous one, the, the tale of Cain and Abel, in which rather than 
the gods patting Cain on the back and saying, well done, old fellow, someone needed to do that. You, you made a sacrifice, that'll, that'll found civilization. That's what we need, which is exactly what happens in the Romulus and Remus story, which is a similar story of uh, brothers killing each other to get to, found, to be the founder. Mm. God turns up and says, where is your brother? His blood cries to me from the ground. And the whole of culture then gets off to this rather questionable start. <laughs> it's got a big question mark over it because God has called murder what we call sacrifice. Mm. Cultures call it sacrifice, and that makes it something good and foundations to, to so the city and all that. It uh, goes from the victim needed to die to the victim shouldn't have died. To you killed the victim. You killed the victim. How are you going to learn to live without doing that again? <laughs> right. And, and that's the, yeah. that, if you like, is the... Uh, when you talk about Jesus and the cross, that's what's happening. You're getting Jesus, so God himself coming into the midst of just a typical sort of lynch violence, a peculiar mixture of political and religious lynch violence. So actually, the kind of lynch violence that arrives, which neither the best legal system nor the best religious system, both of which had laws against that kind of thing, mm. can stop, because lynches are always the, if you like, grumbling reality beneath legal and religious law. And he goes and he occupies that space, not so as to blame humans for being, you know, uh, intrinsic murderers, but to say, this is the kind of thing you find yourselves doing. You don't need to do it any longer. <laughs> uh, mm. this, this way of being together over against someone is like constantly putting a Band-Aid on a uh, on a frequently opening up wound, it's playing the same scratched LP over and over again. Now, here's the possibility of a different game. So he enters into the place of shame and death and exile and being cast out, mm. occupies it, shows it for what it is, not so as to rub people's faces in it, but to say, yes, I, I let you go, I forgive you, I'm not holding this against you. Let's see if we can play another game. It's it's fascinating you say this, and this is where I want to delve into, I guess, theology of the cross, because as someone who grew up as a Baptist pastor's son, then found themselves in a Lutheran church, the one thing I, I find interesting now is that we never really discussed what the cross was. It was almost assumed, it was almost... It was just not really dealt with at all. And And certainly I look back now and can see that we were certainly buying into atonement doctrine or buying into penal substitution in, in some cases. Um, and so for some people listening to this, perhaps even analysing what the cross means and, and the theology of that might be quite a, a new concept. So just to, to step it back, Peter, can you just give a bit of a background as to what atonement doctrine is? How is that way of looking at, at the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, it's the idea that somehow um, through the death of Jesus there's a restoration of the relationship between God and humanity and since um, you know, Anselm really there's been that idea that God was affronted um, we'd sinned so badly that we all just needed to be destroyed and that God put um, Jesus you know, put Jesus forward as the victim and basically 
God kills Jesus to satisfy God. It's the sort of penal substitutionary idea. So Jesus dies to save us from God almost. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It saves us from... That's yeah, exactly right. Um, which I always found really difficult. It was the, it, I have to say it was the Girardian idea that, um, that really what was being played out was a human, a grossly human dynamic or an ordinary human dynamic, I guess. Um, and that through the resurrection the victim is proclaimed to be innocent and then we're asked to reconsider how we enter into relationship with each other and God as a result of discovering the innocence of the victim and as I think as Gil Bailey suggests that puts humanity at a crossroads we've now got the choice of either well, the, the scapegoat victim doesn't work anymore if you accept that the if you can see what you're doing. Mm. So you either descend into unbridled violence where we kill each other because now I can't focus on that person as the scapegoat because, after all, you really are a rival. <laughs> um, so either we either... Fo- it becomes unbridled violence or we discover the new way of living, which is the... Um, imitation of Christ and and the self-emptying and just redis- as James said, rediscovering our identity in a completely different way. The, the then the cross the cross becomes um, first and foremost a human drama in which God has placed God's self um, in order for the human drama to be exposed for what it is. So instead of it being the divine payout system, which which in a sense is a great way of setting ourselves free from any responsibility in it. If, if we see the cross as God playing God's self out and paying God's self out, then um, you can just say that humans were just going along for the ride. You know, that idea that it was inevitable. Well, actually it is because of mimetic theory, it is inevitable. But the idea that God planned it and God set it up and that God was, you know, the humans just become sort of little bit, bit players in um, an otherwise divine or cosmic drama. Um, this way it shoots it right back home to us. It is really about our salvation and about how we live with each other and how we live in and with God. But it's a completely different understanding of how that mechanism works. And so for me now, Good Friday has become um, a really key day. But the combination of Good Friday and Easter is at the absolute heart of transformation. It, it does seem perplexing. I mean, it, seemingly Gerard in the Bible, in the Christian story, the story of the cross, found a story that subverted scapegoating, a story that, that uh, I guess, escaped this, this way of thinking. Yet the majority... Well, played it out to its... Perhaps, yes. ...ultimate yeah. expression, really, yes. Well, it, it does still seem... To my eye, though, that the vast majority of the, at least the, the Christian mega churches, but the Christian church in general, st- it believes in a, a an atonement doctrine faith. That to them there was a whether it's an exchange, whether it was a ransom paid, whatever it might be, which to me seems totally counterintuitive to this this form of I guess looking at the Christian faith. James, why do you think atonement doctrine is so uh, popular, so addictive? Is it because it plays into the same uh, I guess systems that we're used to playing into. Yep, I guess so. It uh, rather than subverting sacrificial thinking from within, it it confirms them. 
becomes the biggest and the best sacrifice. Well, yeah. well not only that, it confirms them. But, but, and this is the thing, it then leaves you with moralism. If you like, if, atonement, if according to atonement theory, what Jesus did was pay the price for our sin, because God needed the price to be paid, mm. and the price was the price for all those sins which are clearly set out in the uh, in the Old Testament. <laughs> so what Jesus was doing was paying the bill. Then all that's really left for us to do is to behave. Don't put anything else on the bill. <laughs> Don't put anything else on the bill. And certainly don't try to alter what the bill was, um, because otherwise you're um, disrespecting the blood of Christ. Um, with the result that actually what you get is the really interesting part of Christianity, which is learning how much God loves us, coming towards us and entering into our violence to set us free from it. You get that reduced to a backstage exercise out there and you get sentenced to the boredom of Christianity essentially being moralism rather than learning how to be a new creature in the light of the love that I'm discovering uh, myself receiving from the one who enters into, uh, into that. But there are people for whom, if you like, what they want is a, a, a totalitarian package. That happened, now this happened, now I don't need to think about it. You've given me the message what should I do? Uh, that fits in with certain kinds of, uh, with a certain kind of fragility, and I think that we have to respect fragility always. Um, much more interesting, I think, is realizing that you can't separate the love of Christ from the opening up of human, moral, ethical, and spiritual possibility, <laughs> and that actually, His coming into our place of violence, occupying it, showing us what we were doing, forgiving us for it, actually enables us to start to learn what being human really is. It's an act of recreation rather than the settling of any bill. Mm. <laughs> and that finding ourselves on the inside of and to whatever minuscule attempt, minuscule extent, co-participators in the bringing into being of God's new creation, which is why he gave us the Holy Spirit, which is, after all, the creator spirit. That takes it out of the realm of moralism and into the realm of the creator making something big and glorious and rather wonderful. So it's, it's a countercultural, a counterintuitive, transformative, subvertive message rather than one that just plays into the, the system. Um, I, I, I know, is it Girardi in the, the saying it's the end of sacrifice, not the ultimate sacrifice? Mm, yeah. That is what the cross is. Yeah, the, 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 what we're encountering is, is the disempowering of the sacrificial mechanism. So mm. it's the end of... So for many people, it really is only that little shift in the way our sentence is constructed. So instead of it being a Jesus sacrifice on the cross being the ultimate cro sacrifice... It is the end of sacrifice, which in a sense makes it ultimate in terms of it being the final. It's the great unmasking, if you like, of sacrifice. Mm. So it's a, it's a very simple shift at one level, which opens um, the most amazing gateway to life. 
So the cross therefore becomes the ultimate invitation to life. So a lot of the stuff that is said about the cross um, is still true. It's just it's been tweaked ever so slightly to uh, becoming a gateway to life in its fullness rather than, as James says, that sort of diminutive expression of life, which is following rules, um, being respectable, that sort of well, and suffering constant emotional blackmail, and, and constant oh, emotional how can blackmail. You do such yes, things yes, right. I yes. who died for you, how can you do such yes, things? Right. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. So, so, a, so for a lot of Christians, I think all they need to do is turn the little the, the, the dial ever so slightly. The cross remains right at the centre, um, but what we understand happened on the cross shifts in a way that is incredibly liberating. And so it's not about denying the faith. The creedal statements remain, you know, more or less intact. It was just oh, we change. We just change the way we understand what happened there. So instead of God needing Jesus to die for his him that, to be avenged, we needed that one. crowd yes. needed that crowd needed Jesus to die because of the scapegoat yeah, to show us we were wrong. Yeah. Well, and yes. Well, also to assuage us. Mm. I mean, there is an angry divinity in this account, and it is us. It's us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where we always need our mm. vengeance satisfied one way or another. Mm. Um, but that's yeah. that's us. Yes. That's nothing to do with. There is no violence in God. Mm. <laughs> He's not demanding anything. He's giving Himself mm. into our midst, so that we can get off that trip. Mm. So, so, so it's understanding things like when we hear the word wrath used, mm. it's our wrath, um, you know, and 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 it's uh, you know, often in biblical translations the word wrath of the words of God are added because of our theology, you know, the, save us from the wrath of God. Whereas if you if we read the Greek, it's save us from the wrath, and then then by having it not assigned, we're invited to ask the question: so who? Whose wrath? What wrath? And we have to make the really painful discovery of realizing it's us. Yeah, mm. Getting us off our projections. Yeah. Of wrath onto God. So yeah, which so are very good ways yeah, of avoiding having looking at our right. own. <laughs> and so the the cross becomes a superhuman story, um, and it becomes a, re- a story that we repeat over and over again. And now that we've learnt that the victim is innocent, we start looking at the innocence of victims, and and we stop victimising. Well, but it, it's 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 that it's because that has so deeply set itself into our culture. Now we look at victims in a different light. In Jesus' time, if you were um, if you were a prisoner of war or something like that, you were seen as legitimate spoils of war. It's because of the victim is innocent narrative that we've discovered through Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. We now look to victims as people that need to be um, protected. We have rules of war that you can't mistreat prisoners of war. They're not they're not seen as as collateral damage in that in that way or 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 spoils of war as they used to be. I mean, you look at some of the records in in the Bible itself of people being um, subjugated peoples. You know, the the men are killed and the women are taken as um, as as spoils. Mm. We've learnt to look for the innocence of the victim. And so now we have 
um, you know, the United Nations and intervening, and we have refuge, you know, the work that matters to me with refugees and asylum seekers, they're not seen as people who deserve their fate, they're seen as people who are innocent victims. And that, that use of the term innocent victim, which we just toss around these days, is a direct result of, of the Christ event reshaping the way we understand human relationships. Yeah, wow. It's an amazing, um, it's amazing how deep the gospel is. And it's taken us 2,000 years. I think I read that in one of your books, James, that it took, no, us, we still took, don't, us, took uh, us 2,000 years to actually get for the Christ event to actually begin well, to mean what it means. Yeah, no, it, it, the maturing process has been a very long one. And of course, we still don't get it right. No, we still don't get it right. But we, right. And we've invented ever more perverse ways of using what we've learned about victims against the truth it was revealing, which is yes. this adopting the position of the victim as a club so as to hit other people. <laughs> That's right. Yes. One of the uh, opinion pieces I wrote during the, um, the marriage equality debate was about how quite early on Christians started claiming vic- um, victimage status yeah. because there is now a power in being the victim, whereas once upon a time the idea of claiming to be a victim would be to be labelled as a loser. But now if you can successfully get people to accept that you're a victim, you get some power you get the right to be uh, looked after, you get the right to have your rights protected. Mm. And so, you know, Christians, some Christians uh, in the marriage equality debate are playing the idea that we need to be protected from this horror that is about to be unleashed on us because we are victims. And so they claim victimage and they claim victimage for the faith. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, if you like, but oh, elegant uh, sort of turning on its head of, yeah, it's one we're all tempted to do at any time. Mm. It's, it's become immensely successful. Much of much of the victory of of uh, Donald Trump and the movement of thought that goes along with that really got going with Newt Gingrich. Um, but it was the sense of white males as being the ultimate victims in <laughs> in American society. So he was turning. It was an attempt to stoke resentment. Mm playing to the sense of entitlement and loss. It doesn't seem to be too difficult to convince anybody that their life hasn't worked out as well as it should have. That, that's that's something that I think people saw with Trump, was if you tell somebody your life should have been better than this, most people would agree with that sentiment. Well, uh, let's remember, the devil always has the best tunes. Mm. Uh, learning how to sing against the scapegoating tune, the, the victim-creating tune. That's a difficult thing to to do. So, so I guess this different theology, this approach that you know Jesus didn't have to die to pay a price, but Jesus had to die to show us that you know sacrificing and scapegoating is an inherently broken system that's just going to lead to more violence and more hatred. How does this change James' our approach to to sin and to judgment and to these concepts? Well, completely, as Jesus himself pointed out, um, because. Uh, sin rather than doing certain things is uh, you know that can be listed is now seen as the extent to which I am participating in the driving out of people <laughs> um, often calling them sinners yeah, um, yeah. so the which is why the so central to the New Testament is the business of not judging and why you know the most terrifying uh, statements are made concerning people who judge other people 
that's you know the the, the real the really strong statements are about people who erect themselves in judges over against other people rather than seeing that all our judging is reflexive um it is always ourself we're judging when we're uh judging another um and that therefore the shape of sin is not so much the content but the mechanism mm. do you remember the in the case of the story of the man born blind uh at the very end when the man has had his sight restored Jesus makes it quite clear that uh the sin involved was nothing to do with being blind but those who refused to see an act of god in the way the man was brought back to uh to sight in other words it's being involved without perceiving it in right. the mechanism of expulsion of course dressed up as goodness that's sin the mechanism of expulsion dressed up as goodness and of course all our mechanisms of expulsion are dressed up as goodness and um, i su- i suppose that sin is not so much being judged in the way humans would think of judgment but the judgment of that sin is continuing the broken systems of human existence yeah and it means with a bit of luck that at a certain time uh people who were executed suffered beaten despised under a particular government of goodness under a particular pattern of goodness will be seen in fact to have been the judges <laughs> mm. over all the system that judged them they were the ones who got it right and the the whole of the um a gallery of finger waggers and uh were in fact being judged by their own attitudes towards this person who was the one who was living the truth and there are numerous accounts of you know of uh uh people like the classic example is the Dreyfus case in in France um Dreyfus was a falsely accused Jewish officer he was falsely accused of being a german spy he was a jewish officer um uh, massively mistreated and then people started protesting his innocence some people started protesting his innocence huge revulsion against that on the part of all you know good patriotic uh nationalist catholic feeling in france at the time to have this person driven out and of course ultimately his innocence was was proven and he stands without having wished it as the judge of 19th century france <laughs> late 19th early 20th century france i mean quite literally the the falsity and the mendacity of their society was laid bare mm. by their having attempted to coalesce over against him the same is true of the pictures we see of lynchings if you look uh, there are collections of uh, photographs of postcards of lynchings from the period between 1870 and 1950 in, in the united states which show the lynchers standing in front of the corpses hanging from the trees looking proud these are these were actually you know photographers were hired to come to the lynching so that they could send so that people could send family pictures back home of themselves standing in front and of course they at the time that was they thought they were doing something good now we look at we look at those and there's no question at all that it's the lynched black people who are the judges mm. of the complete 
corruption and uh, what would you say it uh, the delinquency of the society <laughs> so i suppose in the whether you want to call it paradox or irony again the the power is found in weakness yeah um the judge is judge as crucified one not as uh not as you know deus ex machina wagging finger from without so perhaps then then sin is less about this list of things that if you do these things, these actions are inherently wrong and will separate you from God, but it's saying that often these things that are listed as sin or called sin will lead you back into division, will lead you back into scapegoating, will lead you back into all of these things that the the crucifixion is trying to tell us is not the way for humans to live. Yeah, but also that no no amount of getting all the legal prescriptions right is ever in fact going to check the really dangerous thing which is our pattern of desire <laughs> and the question of which other is going to move it from within is it going to be the other which is the holy spirit in which case we don't need any of the prescriptions anyhow mm. or is it going to be the other which is the mob <laughs> not necessarily it's immediately violent form but just in the current social uh, anger, in which case, amazingly, we will be able to override all the prescriptions in the name of some greater good as we move towards <laughs> reassuring our goodness uh, over against some other. So I guess, Peter, that is the the solution, is at least the first step of living a different way, is being aware of the way we are living and being reminded of our complicit nature within the the murders of the innocent to try to make sure it doesn't happen again? Is is that the best... If people are listening and they're thinking, that is the way I want to live, is the first step to try to just be aware of how inherently consumed by the system you already are? The, fir the first step is to recognise how powerful the mechanism is and how often we use it. If you think of Australian politics, um, you know the way we've treated asylum seekers and refugees, incarcerating them in concentration camps on Pacific Islands... Is, is justified as being a good thing. We stop people drowning, so so say the politicians. It's uh, stopped other people coming. Um, it's heralded, heralded, heralded as being a really good thing that we've done, um, full of virtue, um, which somehow justifies the things that we discount about it in terms of sexual violence, children going mad, self-harm. Um, and we... We've actually scapegoated those people and unified ourselves against them. You know, the, the yellow peril, really, that argument that is a deep argument in Australian, white Australian psyche. And we do it time and again. We're just picking on the Muslims. We're doing it. You know, it's very easy politics. It's an easy mechanism to enact. And part of, part of the awareness is just beginning to see how all of that is scapegoating and how we are creating unity as a result of it and the beginning and to call it out to unmask it and then to enter into the hard work which is to find the, the imitation of christ way mm. but in australia it's it's been been the blacks the chinese the yellow peril the Muslims, uh, asylum seekers seen as invaders. Um, it's, it's what's sustained 
the Australian psyche for a long time, as well as as you know turning into wholly the sacrifice of the Anzacs, and it's become it's become our founding myth. It's mm. very different to what it was when I was a boy, um, and again, it's it's. It's just the Girardian mechanism or the scapegoating mechanism and Girard's great gift asks us to look at it in a completely different way, to see it for what it is and then to do the hard work of how do we become a community that isn't produced by scapegoating someone. So break out of the the matrix that we seemingly are all so deeply inherently programmed well, with. The, well, to see it, for what it is and to know that we are in it you can't get out of the matrix as james says we are mimetic this is who we are mm. it's learning to but we can detect us. we can detect hints of it when mm. when a unity becomes too sacred then yeah there's a good ground to think that we need to be shaken out of it because it's over against something it's, it's over against something it's yeah. a myth that's holding us together at the expense mm. of <laughs> what do you mean when a unity becomes too sacred um, well, I think that you were mentioning Anzac Day, mm. and I shouldn't um, I shouldn't discuss that. But maybe oh no, I'm glad if you did because I think we need some outsiders to point out to us that Anzac Day has become um, almost a corruption of uh, the use of sacrifice, deification of it, it hides it hides the the foolishness of the generals, and it hides the uh, the pointlessness of the war, and it hides all sorts of things under this veil of of, of a unity you're not allowed to question. Mm. Um, I remember in uh, 2008, uh, 1998, when I went to uh, Grafton, um, I I used the Anzac Day address to call upon people to actually live lives that were different and worthy in a sense that the you know that some of the political rumblings of the time Pauline Hanson was having her first sort of go at at ruining Australia and 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 I called that out at on Anzac Day saying you know if you really think that that in the, on Anzac Day something um, good was born then we should be calling out politics like this which is politics of division and I was taken to task because I hadn't rehearsed, I hadn't done what was expected of someone on an Anzac Day address, which was simply to say, these chaps went over, died for us, um, we're forever grateful. Australia is great, unquestionably, because these men died. Yes. And don't, don't you in any way suggest that Australia might not be great. And I was suggesting that there was, you know, Australia is, um, has a comfortable racism, uh, a well-enshrined misogyny, and uh, it, it, amongst other <laughs> defects. And, you know, Anzac Day at its best would call that out. Mm. But if you use Anzac Day to call it out, you're seen as as somehow trampling on the memory of the dead and you know these guys died for australia and australia is great so today we say that the script is today is to, is to say today australia is a great place because of these guys and it's inherently great because they died 
sort of abrogates any responsibility we have of uh, to liberate uh, our indigenous people from appalling third world living conditions, um, to stop domestic violence, to set the refugees and asylum seekers free. And if you if you, you if you actually use real world mm. uh, politics on an Anzac Day, you will be smacked down because the what you're supposed to say on this day is you're supposed to rehearse the myth. And there's a set story. If you listen to Anzac Day addresses, that's what you get. Sacrifice, foundation, greatness. Yeah. But God calls murder what we call sacrifice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and see, we need to call like the Anzac Day story, the Anzac story at its best, and the war poets do it so well. They actually say these young men were destroyed by incompetent leadership. They were murdered. Mm. They were sent unnecessarily over the top because the generals had the idea that if we sacrificed more of our blokes, we would eventually wear out the other side. Now, if we, you know, that, that is to call it out for its naked, um, pointless, murder. pointless murder rather than deifying our, you know, our glorious dead. So a reminder of, of how did we let this happen? Like ch- a challenge? You know, like it should become a challenge for us. I mean, part of the Anzac sort of ritual is to say uh, this is, we, we, we defend peace and we fought for peace, which is an interesting theological concept anyway. Um, <laughs> and and we, we, you know, the price of peace is eternal vigilance and so on. Um, but instead of calling it out for what it was and saying we must not let this happen because it was such a horrible, literally bloody disaster, mm. we, we turn it into some rarefied, uh, deified event, which means that we're far more likely to do it again. And as uh, was pointed out in the Brisbane Peace Lecture a little while ago by Henry Reynolds, Australia has been fighting unnecessary wars ever since World War II. We've been at war for uh, I think it's 68 of the 70 something years since World War II. Yeah. We're great at going into wars and then we deify um, our soldiers and when they come home, uh, when when our diggers came home from Iraq, uh, Kevin Rudd was asked whether we were going to do an assessment of our involvement in the war and he said that that would um, besmirch the uh, memory of the dead. So we weren't allowed to even ask the question whether it had been appropriate for us to be there because to do so is to dishonour the sacrifice. And and interestingly, it feels as though if you take the crucifixion of Jesus, you can see similar patterns. When you use atonement doctrine, when you, you glorify that sacrifice that instead of using it as a challenge of the scapegoating model is inherently broken, it, it becomes something that is entirely different and that will enable you to scapegoat others under its its own name. Yeah, which is why I think that, you know, to come back to what, what Peter was saying, that central to this is what we do in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, what we're doing is we are remembering and invoking the presence of someone who is being murdered, having previously heard a story or heard some mixture of stories that should have brought us in to remind us how he ended up in that place, how he did it out of generosity, 
and how he is trying to give himself to us so that we can make a better go of him. <laughs> because that's what he's doing. He's offering us a chance to make a better go of being him. But it's always a murdered person who is giving himself to us. It's the lamb who is slaughtered, who stands uh, on the altar. The one you and call the forgiving victim. The one I call the forgiving mm. victim. Mm. But you're right. Uh, it's hard to hold on to that. It's hard. It's one of the things I was taken to Parramatta Cathedral, the Catholic Cathedral in Parramatta. And the there is something strikingly grotesque about the big crucifix in the, the main body of the uh, of the cathedral. It's very striking because it's not stylized in the way uh, most of our crucifixes are to have become cult symbols. It's a reminder that this is a grotesque murder implement. Uh, that's what we're supposed to be remembering. <laughs> mm. We're supposed to be remembering the bizarre phenomenon that what sets us free is someone who is occupying that space for us and giving themselves to us so that we don't have to do that uh, to each other. It's strong medicine. And I share everyone's tendency to run away and want to make it something nice. <laughs> yeah, whereas in reality, it's it's the daily reminder of the worst of human nature, I suppose. Well, and it's allowing us, and this is the whole point of it, this is why it's, it's a blessing, mm. because it allows us to draw close and think, he was prepared to occupy that place, which is me at my very, very worst, putting other people like that in, in into that place mm. and not hold it against me. In other words, I don't need to be frightened anymore. I've been liked at my worst. And that's the most difficult thing, I think, is for us to remember that the whole point of his occupying that space was to show us that he likes us, that he thinks we have a future, that we can become much, much more than that, starting from oh my God, to think that I've been involved in that. And that he isn't cross. <laughs> That's very, very, very difficult. If just just to think about the, the difficulty of it is and how quickly we switch into, we need to get out of pointlessness and into fake meaning. Think of what happened 20 years ago when Princess Diana was killed in a car crash uh, in a tunnel in Paris. Um, it was because of a, a fast driving to escape paparazzi with a drunk driver. There can be nothing more pointless. The meaninglessness of a drunk driving death, let alone of someone so, you know, beautiful and legendary and all of those things. The whole it really is completely pointless. And nobody could bear its pointlessness. So almost immediately conspiracy theories started to develop. Because it it, it, it tried to give it meaning. We will give any sort of meaning rather than sit with the pointlessness of certain forms of human frailty and just weep or want to be forgiven for doing similar things when we do them. But no, the easiest thing to do is to construct a meaningful story and uh, make the whole thing into a you know, politico-social psychodrama uh, soap novel, soap opera, um, and that's what immediately happened. And just think, that's the classic move of idolatry. Fake meaning out of pointless death. <laughs> does, that, does that seem a fair, a fair point, Peter? Spot on, I would say. <laughs> so to, to wrap up then, James, in, in closing, um, 
and we've, we've, I know we've touched on this at times, um, both of you have throughout this chat, but, but when we talk about humans being inherently mimetic in their desire, when we talk about the rivalries, the scapegoating, the fact that even the, the very message that was sent to us to subvert scapegoating for good has become one that has empowered more scapegoating over time, where is the hope going forward? Where is the hope of transformation, the hope of, of change? Where, what, what, what within all of this provides hope? Hmm. Well, of course, the same power of the same one who came into our world so as to, to undo <laughs> is at work. That's what the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> and the ability for us to be caught up however flakily uh, in the work of the of the Holy Spirit, however messily in the work of the Holy Spirit, is still there. And it still happens that people suddenly find themselves having to do things that are completely counterintuitive and, and crazy-seeming because they know that it is better to be dead than to be complicit <laughs> in some or other form of... Uh, terrible violence. And so they blow a whistle and they start something or they reach out to people across aisles that, that seem impossible and they run risks of themselves being mistreated and, and so on and so forth. And, and that that does have a knock-on effect. And it's constantly happening in all sorts of unexpected places. And then it happens rather amazingly when you least expect it. I mean, uh, someone, this was a, a year or so ago, uh, a suicide bomber was coming into a market in Iraq, and the young Muslim man saw this guy coming, clearly with a, a vest with explosives, and ran towards him and embraced him. Of course, he was blown to smithereens the moment the bomb went off. And people saw that what he did. He ran towards him deliberately so as to embrace him, so as to shield with his body the effect of the, of the suicide bomb. He was blown to smithereens immediately. Thirty people died in that. If he hadn't, it would have been in the upper hundreds, if not thousands. <laughs> you will think, where did that come from? <laughs> mm. Where did that come from? <laughs> who is greater in the, in the kingdom of God than someone who does that? That is showing exactly the self-emptying out love, who trusts that his being will be given to him by another. It's extraordinary. Uh, and it was, was not not marked by a Christian religious narrative, yet you could not get a more Christian religious narrative than that one. <laughs> and the fact that, and I suppose it ties into the, the story that Jesus is not bitter and hateful on the cross. Yeah. He says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Exactly. That's but in the, the face, of, in the face of whatever, hate, I'm doing, I'm doing this for you because I want you to have a, a chance to be playing a better game. Yeah. yeah, well, that's a perfect note to end on, I think. Uh, Peter, as someone who's read a lot of James' work, if people do want to uh, track down some of James' books, what would you recommend as a, as a good place to start? Uh, fragments? What is it called? Uh, faith, faith Beyond, faith faith beyond resentment. resentment is a really good place to start. It's a lovely analysis of a number of uh, biblical stories, um, which gives people a real good handle on... Um, how to recast the narrative through Girardian eyes. Um, and Knowing Jesus is also a great book. 
Thank you very much, Peter, for your input as always. And James, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We're honoured to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much Thanks, indeed. James. It's a thrill for me to be in Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that it's a little like your home uh, your home back in Brazil. So Yeah, well, when I used to live in Brazil, <laughs> the climate was very like this, and <laughs> yeah. even some of the trees and the, <laughs> the style of architecture is the same. It's been a, a beautiful <laughs> afternoon and an equally beautiful conversation. Thanks so much, James. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.